You are listening to the Reformanda Initiative podcast, where we analyze and discuss Roman Catholic theology and practice from an evangelical perspective. My name is Clay Kennard. I'm sitting here with my brothers, Reed Carr and Leonardo de Chirico. Reed, why don't you tell us what we're going to talk about today on our podcast? Uh, basically, we're going to be discussing uh, the reasons people cross the Tiber. Uh, the Tiber is the river that runs through Rome. In Italian, it would be the Tevere, but we call it, in English, it's been called the Tiber River. But uh, what that means is basically people who have, who convert to Roman Catholicism and, and cross over the Tiber River and basically accepting accepting Rome as uh, as its theological and, and religious religious home, and so it's basically converting to Roman Catholicism. So, so there's a lot of a lot of instances of, especially even evangelicals and people coming out of Protestant backgrounds, um, who are attracted to to Rome and and do in, intent indeed cross over and, and cross the Tiber and, and convert to Roman Catholicism. And, and it's certainly worth asking, well, what, why is it? What is the attraction? Uh, what is alluring people um, and pulling them uh, across, the, across the Tiber, again, to, to kind of use an, an analogy, but into uh, the Roman Catholic fold? And, and what is pushing them from, from the other side? There's always this type of a, a tension between a push and pull. Um, from a, a context they're coming out of and, and where they're going. So there's something pushing them out and then pulling them uh, into Roman Catholicism. And, and there's been books written on it. In fact, uh, Clay will be a huge contributor to our podcast today because he's actually done, uh, Clay, you've done some research and study and writing on this very topic and, and did a book review on, on a book that examined this exact question. What was the name of the book? Mind, Heart, and Soul, Intellectuals in the Path to Rome. It's a book written by Robert George and R.J. Snell. And if, I'm not, if I remember correctly, it's a, it's a story that, or it's a book that includes 16 uh, testimonies of, of people who converted to Roman Catholicism, many of which came out of evangelical or Protestant uh, backgrounds. One was a megachurch pastor, if I remember correctly, uh, so we look forward to hearing what, what you learned in, in that research. Uh, there's a, a book I read recently called um, The Evangelical Exodus. It's basically a, you know, a bunch of seminarians who uh, studied at a seminary and, and through their studies uh, converted to Roman Catholicism. So there's lots of examples, and so it's definitely worth uh, asking ourselves, what is the appeal? And I know I, I have personally friends uh, who, who have friends or relatives who have been attracted to Roman Catholicism. It's, it's definitely a trend that's uh, upward trending, we'll, we'll say. And, uh, and so what is that? Why is that? And what is the appeal exactly? So, yeah, that's basically what we're going to look at and why people are, again, using the, the, the metaphor here, crossing the Tiber and converting to Roman Catholicism. So with that introduction, um, uh, Clay, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get you to start responding to that question. As you, as you read these books and as you've uh, done a lot of study on this, what have been the main reasons that uh, people have converted to Roman, Roman Catholicism, especially those who are coming from a, a Protestant or evangelical background? Well, I think you mentioned the, the evangelical megachurch pastor that converted, and I think his testimony does a really good job of setting up this, this analysis, this conversation. Um, in America, he's he's probably less known, but in the European context, we're talking about a man who was, I won't say he was a Billy Graham, but he was very, mm. very well known. His name is Ulf Ekman, mm. and uh, he was born in Sweden. 
where he was ordained as a Lutheran minister. And in 1983, he founded the charismatic evangelical church called Word of Life, mm. which eventually grew into a mega church that had an expansive outreach and a global influence. Um, and there, for 30 plus years of ministry, he had founded several Bible schools, a seminary. He had organized and led conferences around the world. He'd offered, authored over 40 books that had even been translated into, I think, over 30 languages. Um, but he valued the evangelical emphasis on reading and teaching the Bible, having a personal relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then he, he came from an evangelical context that had a very charismatic experience of faith. Yeah. Um, but he admits that in his camp, uh, his evangelical camp, there was a general lack of knowledge regarding church history. And at times there was even, he said, like open scorn for the long history of the church. Um, their ecclesiology was defined not necessarily through a noted historical connection to a global and universal church that shared a common confession of faith, um, but one that was in a way, isolated uh, with independent congregationalist churches that tended to have a pragmatic look at the present and a futuristic uh, eschatology, so a view of the end times. But as he began to study church history, uh, he discovered a church with what he said was a much higher ecclesiology, one that claimed apostolic continuity, one that claimed unity under the authority of the Pope. And in the midst of these liberal Uh, Protestant developments that he was seeing around him, he began to become attracted to the historical tradition of Rome Mm. Um, because what he saw there was a church that held an unwavering commitment uh, to their teachings and unity under the authority of the Pope, right? Mm. Um, So he began to think that maybe his prejudices, his Protestant prejudices towards Rome stemmed from his lack of knowledge regarding what Rome actually taught. Mm. And in the end, he actually rejected the Reformation doctrines. Uh, And he actually says, I can quote here, I used to believe the four sola tenets of the Reformation, more or less out of a Protestant habit or tradition. Step by step, I started to see how the Protestant mindset had an overriding attitude of, quote, either or, while the Catholic mindset, as well as the Hebrew, he says, is more of a, quote, both and I think we've talked about that maybe in, in our previous episodes, the, the kind of et, et, the both and aspect of Roman Catholicism, both grace and works, et cetera. Um, but he said out of the aspects of Rome that attracted him the most, it was the sacramental element of the Roman Catholic Church. That's what began to dra- uh, drag him into or draw him into the Tiber River. If you've ever been to Rome, it might look pretty. It's a pretty gross river. No one wants to get in it. Um, but the sacramental element of the Catholic Church was drawing him in there. And so in my research, uh, I kind of based um, what we'll define as kind of categories for attractors and then turnoffs from evangelical Protestant faith. Uh, He summarizes his attraction to Rome using four words, Mm. historicity, apostolic continuity, authority, and sacramentality. Mm. And in every testimony that we have read of an evangelical converting to Rome, whether that's in the book Mind, Heart, and Soul, whether that's through testimonies we found online, whether that's the book that you're... Yeah, yeah, the seminarians. It was one or a combination of those four things that influenced these people's decision to cross the Tiber River. Um, I think we could add to intellectual or intellectuality, yeah. and then a sense of community to that list. So before you, before you get going on that, because you just said a whole lot, um, and so you're now breaking it down into the main 
categories of what uh, what appealed these these people to 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 convert to Roman Catholicism. And the right. first one being historicity, and exactly. we're talking about and the and the, the the long history of the Catholic Church. We're talking about one of the longest existing religious institutions. Mm. Um, they lay claim to the Church Fathers. Uh, they lay claim to the earliest writings and expressions of the Christian faith. Mm. And so. Um, for example, Ekman came from uh, a background that didn't have much of a focus or emphasis on their church history. And we see that time and time again in these conversations. Um, so yeah, the historicity of the church. And these categories, historicity, uh, apostolic continuity, authority, and sacramentality, um, then allowed us to kind of go back and, and taking those categories, evaluate certain weak points that we saw within the evangelical. So whereas they, to juxtapose the historicity of the Catholic Church, there was the, on the other end, there was the weakness perceived in the evangelical church on its historical roots. Exactly. And, and so what does, that, what does that look like exactly with, um, like what could be some tangible examples of, of what would draw someone to the historical nature of Roman Catholicism and then the lack of it in, in evangelicalism. Yeah, I think that in, in many experiences of uh, church, evangelical churches, uh, the reference to his, church history is never made, never intentionally drawn, a, and therefore uh, one gets the impression that the church has no historical past and... Uh, and once this argument becomes important, uh, they see the the claims of the Catholic Church as very appealing and very cogent because they can go back to saying, oh, we've been here for uh, two millennia with continuity in apostolic su succession, yeah. 265 popes, and uh, this is very uh, forceful. And uh, that speaks about our own... Um, weakness, weakness, yeah. and and our lack of understanding of the biblical faith as an historical faith, uh, and not only a personal, individualistic, mm. uh, present day, centered on me kind of faith. Uh, this speaks a lot about our own uh, misunderstanding of, of the biblical gospel. We we understand. The biblical gospel, many of the elements of the biblical gospel are, are rightly understood in most of our evangelical churches. But this aspect that is part of the uh, Hebrew faith, I mean, uh, Jewish faith, and uh, by extension the Christian faith, is uh, often lacking. So maybe in the sermons they've never heard a reference to a church father, mm -hmm. they've never used a confession of faith. That goes beyond, you know, 10, 20, 50 years ago. They've never read a book or never gone through a course in basic church history. These are all reasons for then leading people to be attracted to Rome, which instead heavily uh, invests on, on the historicity of its own institutions. And oftentimes it's not a weakness that's actually perceived until you realize that it's not, you, you don't go into the, an evangelical is usually not saying, oh, well, you know, there's really not a, uh, a good historical grounding in my faith until you perceive it elsewhere. And so oftentimes it is perceived uh, in, the, in the Catholic Church and, and they have a very tangible, visible 
uh, uh, historicity to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And most of the converts uh, describe evangelicalism in terms of an isolated evangelical church expression with no connection to historical or global faith. So it wasn't, like you said, until they were exposed to it, whether that's through uh, maybe deciding to study theology in a seminary or a Bible school or uh, coming in contact with people in college, for example, that uh, come from a Roman Catholic background, uh, that's when they began to realize that their expression of faith, the way that they'd understood church, was was very much uh, isolated. And w- which also uh, piggybacks on what you said earlier about the unity that or attracts people to it. Because when you, if you come from a an evangelical background where you're uh, an isolated church or a church that's not part of a larger network or part of other churches or has collaboration of any type with other churches is just kind of there, and you have no perceived historical roots, uh, and then you see a church that has that uh, boasts of its of its two millennia of history, yeah. as Leo was saying. Uh, there's one Catholic church; it's not a bunch of de- denominations. Uh, it's a it's what is perceived again as a unified. Um, church and a lot of it, it and I can I continue to use that word because the perception is key yeah. on how it's perceived, whether it, it represents uh, reality or not. But so it, it is very appealing. Yeah, and typically what what they end up uh, saying about their previous Protestant or evangelical experience is that uh, it had a sectarian type of mm. um, uh, you know they, there was sectarianism. There was a, a perceived and evident lack of unity. And so the, like you said, the the unity under the apostolic uh, authority of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope as its head mm. uh, becomes very attractive. However, what they're often very much unaware of is that um, there is also broad division within the Roman Catholic Church as well. So our authority comes from Scripture alone. We've talked about this in previous episodes, uh, and there are... There's, there's division, no, there's disagreements yeah. uh, under that authority. And so we see that in various denominations, yeah. splits in denominations, etc. Well, within the Roman Catholic Church, instead you've got the Pope as the head of the church, and there are progressive and liberal movements, there are charismatic movements, there are uh, conservative movements, there are folklore movements, Marian movements, and they are often at odds with one another. In fact, one of the uh, testimonies is from a, a journalist, Kristen Powers, and she was very much attracted mm. to the fact that within Roman Catholicism, she found a place for her more progressive-leaning political ideologies. Mm. Um, and while she was here in Rome covering um, some type of council or get-together that I think was addressing perhaps um, the health of, of the family, she was confronted for the first time with the divisions within Roman Catholicism, conservative values pitted against progressive values. And she says she had a little crisis of faith in that moment. And her her thinking was, wait a second, I left that when I left the evangelical world, but here I'm finding within Roman Catholicism the same thing. So yeah, that's, that's, that's what often happens. The selective, uh, narrow-minded view of evangelicalism confronted with an idealized view of Catholicism. So uh, people go through a very um, low and narrow experience of, and at times bad experience of evangelicalism, and uh, they, they confront and contrast it to the um, claims of Rome, but they tend to be idealized, not to be realistic, yep. because when once you... 
you begin to explore or to live within the Roman Catholic system like we are daily exposed in uh, in Rome, you, you begin to realize that that idealization is not real, is a doesn't exist. I mean, yeah. this, most of our friends, most of our people, uh, and most of our neighbors, they don't, they're not intellectual, they're not, they don't even bother about historicity, they, they, they are as individualistic as most people are, and yet m the projection of for most people in, or coming out of evangelicalism is that uh, Rome is the place of history, the place of unity, the place of peace, the mm -hmm. place where everybody is in peace with one another. That's not really the case. Actually, uh, I mean, the case could be, could be made, <laughs> uh, the contrary case could be made in many ways. Yeah, yeah so for us as um, leaders in evangelical churches, leaders of evangelical uh, institutions, we've got a lot of work to do in order to raise an awareness of church history and the evangelical connection to the historical faith. And so that's one of the things we've we've wrestled with in this research and one of the things when we do conferences and, and we discuss this topic, mm -hmm. we try to help um, pastors and leaders ask questions, evaluate whether or not they're doing a good job of that. And maybe that's something we get into further um, later on in our conversation. But mm -hmm. yeah, so that that's kind of attached to this historicity, right? This this unity. Whereas in evangelicalism, they had a perceived attachment from the historical faith. So what you also mentioned, uh, one of the uh, attracting factors of Roman Catholicism is its is its claim to um, apostolicity. And could you explain that what what that means exactly and why it's so attractive? You know, it's the apostolic succession, the claim that the by way of handing down the uh, sacramental uh, order from one uh, bishop to the other, uh, the continuity is established. And this is the main, this is the uh, essential way in which this uh, succession takes place. It's a uh, monarchical kind of succession from one monarch to another, yeah. not by way of generation, but by way of uh, the passing on of sacramental uh, power and authority. Yeah. Uh, whereas we understand the succession in terms of apostolic fidelity, faithfulness to the apostolic message that doesn't uh, necessarily need a structure, an institution that uh, pass it, uh, uh, passes it down, but uh, it needs faithfulness to the biblical gospel that needs to be safeguarded, taught, and uh, commended and uh, uh, nurtured in, in, in from one generation to the other. So we may belong to different institutions, church-wise, but we we are passing on the, the, the biblical message of the gospel. Yeah. And this is the way we understand apostolic succession, not needing an institution that sacramentally uh, passes it down, but by being faithful to the preaching, the teaching, and then living out of the gospel in our churches and lives. Yep. So the so the the aspect though that is so attractive to so many who convert to Roman Catholicism and give this as one of the reasons 
is it that visible aspect of it, the sacramentality that's tied to the apostolic succession? What is it that is so attractive to people about the church's claim to apostolic succession? Again, having from Peter, starting with Peter, all the way down through the popes and the, or the apostles, passing down, um, I guess, the truths of Scripture. What is it that's so attractive? I think that's part of it. I mean, there is there's the sense that the Roman Catholic Church has been operating kind of in the same way for, yeah. for centuries. And so that is attractive. Um, I would separate, in this case, as far as an attractor, maybe the, the apostolic continuity from the sacramentality. Yeah, they're two separate things. Yeah, so one is, is recognizing this long-lasting authority. This goes back to the Christ Church interconnection, right? So yeah. uh, it's <clears throat> basically been been the same, and it's uh, survived uh, various conflicts throughout history. Um, it claims to be the incarnate presence of Christ, just as Leah was just explaining. The sacramentality of it, uh, that, that comes into play more from the experiential mm. uh, attractiveness of the church. And by that, you we're just talking about the, the, the practice of the sacraments. Exactly. And, which would be the, the Eucharist and uh, what you experience at Mass and, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. Often the experience of evangelical worship is, uh, you know, tied up to emotionalism mm -hmm. or to superficial uh, experientialism. And uh, in the long run, it, it becomes uh, obsolete, it becomes dried, it becomes empty. And the liturgical, sacramental uh, outlook of Roman Catholic worship becomes attractive because it conveys depth, it conveys history, it conveys authority, it conveys liturgy. Whereas, as far as I know, many uh, testimonies, they, they do tend to come from non-liturgical churches, yeah. non, uh, very freestyle, attractional, uh, types of churches without any sense or little sense of uh, liturgy, uh, Bible reading, mm -hmm. uh, confession of faith, and so on. So these are all ingredients that eventually lead to the thirst for something more, something deeper. Yeah, one of one of the weak points that that we identified was um, there was an evangelical turnoff where they saw that there was a superficial and individualistic worship experience. Yeah, that's it. Um, whereas in Roman Catholicism, they were attracted to an objective worship experience that was rooted in an ancient historical sacramental system. Yeah. Uh, many evangelical churches in the North American context uh, have tried to create an attractional means to give the attendee an experience um, where they can experience their faith, mm. where they can be entertained, uh, where they can consume religious content without being a contributing member or participating in the life of the church. Um, and so we've exported these models of doing church all over the world. Um, but these models of church really allow for the development of an individualistic and consumeristic ex expression of faith. Mm. And so when one person becomes aware of the superficiality of the experiential expression of faith that's found in many of our evangelical churches, a Christianity that then provides a way to still have an experiential faith, but through a mystical sacramental system that's rooted in an ancient, historic, and global tradition, that becomes really attractive to them. Yeah. If I, if I can insert a quote here, I'll, I'll come back and, and cite the source in just a minute, but um, uh, someone wrote that most evangelical churches 
and their eagerness to make God seeker-friendly have left their worshipers wondering what exactly it was that they came there seeking in the first place. Nothing, it seems, that they couldn't have gotten at a movie theater or pop concert. And then you juxtapose that with the very high liturgy of a Catholic Mass and and the tangible uh, sensory, you know, sensory overload there, Mm. and it just, and and it feels different. So we have we have the uh, the historicity of the church that's very attractive to people. The long history that the Catholic Church uh, boasts and has um, the uh, the unity that the church um, promulgates in a sense um, uh, the perception that it, it gives them, and that's and, and juxtaposed again with uh, evangelical denominations and what seem to be can often seem as constant infighting, division, let's separate. Um, also, this uh, the apostolic handing down of the faith uh, through the generations, through the, through the Pope and the seat of the Pope, et cetera. Is there, what other, uh, you had mentioned, um, what other aspects that you had mentioned that were so attractive to? Uh, well, uh, this would go back to, um, I guess, the historicity, um, and I would even say intellectuality, but uh, mm. theological discontinuity and a drift towards either liberalism or legalism. Within evangelicalism, yeah, yeah, they would consider that uh, to be a turnoff. So, uh, which I guess the way that I would uh, say that, in other words, is an abandonment of the gospel. Mm. Um, whereas in the Roman Catholic Church, what they see is a doctrinal continuity and commitment, and that's debatable. Uh, in fact, uh, John Henry, Henry Newman wrote a famous essay on the development of Christian doctrine because Mm. we talked about this in a past episode when we evaluated Vatican II theology. There's definitely things that have have changed, right? Um, But when they they recognize within the evangelical or Protestant context there's a drift towards either liberalism or legalism, uh, they start looking elsewhere, Mm. and they see a claim in the Roman Catholic Church to be the same church, so the historic church, the historic faith, continuing to defend that. Um, But we talk about intellectuality. Mm. Uh, I think that, especially in the case of the seminarian testimonies uh, that we have read, is um, a, a big weak point when it comes to uh, evangelicalism. And so there's an a, attraction to the Roman Catholic intellectual tradition. Uh, and as they start to to read the the giant intellectuals of, of the past, of the, of the Christian faith, uh, they do so with a lack of discernment, for example, in reading the Church Fathers, when looking at church history, uh, and reading those Roman Catholic intellectual giants. So uh, that's an issue. For example, um, the book uh, Evangelical Exodus, right? I think those are testimonies from the exact, all from the same seminary. All from the same Southern Seminary in, uh, is it North Carolina or South Carolina, is where uh, Norman Geisler was the, was the founder president. Right, and so I think he's responded to this. I believe he has responded to this. In fact, uh, Professor Scott Oliphant from Westminster uh, has written um, a review on this book and trying to address what he saw as, as the issues there. That can be found, I think, on the Gospel Coalition's website, or we'll even link it in our, our uh, episode notes. But uh, there we had young seminarians who were reading Thomas Aquinas, for example. Um, it's a seminary with a dispensational background, and the author of that book, Evangelical Exodus, who was a student and then actually became staff, a professor, and was Geisler's research assistant, said that at the time there was not even a, a church history course being offered in this seminary. Mm. So here we've got 
young intellectuals who are attracted to the historicity of these intellectual giants um, that are approaching them with a major lack of discernment, a lack of knowledge when it comes to church history. If there's formation in church history, it's very basic. There's not much of a formation in the development of Christian thinking. Mm -hmm. There's no discernment in approaching the church fathers to hold them accountable to uh, the authority of Scripture. Who are, the church, who are the church fathers as you make reference to that? Well, I would say one of the biggest influencers in mind, heart, and soul would be Augustine. Hmm. Um, but Origen... Aquinas, uh, you mentioned. Well, Aquin Aquinas comes much later. He's he's going to be a, your medieval theologian. Um, but just the early church fathers, Leonardo, this is his strong point. He's actually a lecturer of church history. Uh, at the Institute of Evangelical Formation here in Europe. And Leo, you're, you're doing a lot of work to try to help our students understand uh, not just church history, but where church fathers made a decision, made a comment, or influenced uh, a certain line of thinking that ultimately developed into unbiblical theology, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, it's the same, well, following the, the steps of the uh, magisterial reformers, you know, Luther and Calvin, and uh, Bullinger, Vermilie, and many others, they were totally in line with the main uh, message of the mainline fathers, but they were also very critical. And so developing a kind of interpretation that is would not idealize the fathers, but would uh, read them in critical terms under the authority of Scripture. That's the way in which perhaps we have um, uh, departed away from that kind of realism in, uh, in reading the fathers. And Rome reads the fathers in idealistic terms, as if they were a united body of voices, which they were not, and uh, reading them as if they were always right, which they weren't. And so we need to develop a, a more sober, realistic hermeneutics of the father, interpretation of the father, which the, in, in, in the line of the way in which the reformers read the fathers. And, but somehow we've lost in our present-day evangelical uh, culture, we've lost uh, that uh, sense of us belonging to the historical church, and with that lost we've also lost we've also lost uh, the the way to interpret history yeah. so once uh, the history becomes an issue we turn to roman catholic sources and uh, and then we tend to, to drink catholic framework the, yeah we tend to drink from that uh, wellspring but you you mentioned correctly just this idea of the one who is seeking kind of intellectual validation in their theological pursuit of, of truth and history and stuff. The, the Catholic Church is definitely very attractive. I, I know the um, Protestant uh, theologian who was very, very influential in this, this movement of evangelicals and Catholics together, Mark Knoll. I think he wrote the, was part of a co-author of the book, Is the Reformation Over as well? But he had made, um, he had made a statement saying that the, the, um, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. Right, that's right. Which is not true. <laughs> well, right. Not, well, how is that? How much does that play into this? Uh, There's been this reality? very little effort to uh, in the uh, 
uh, I think uh, Stuart, um, uh, he makes the point that um, this was not the case. It was not the case in up to the end of the 19th century. You know, in Princeton and other centers of theological training, uh, the sense of the evangelical faith being the historical faith was very much what was taught. Uh, then the 20th century, with all the struggles with liberalism, with uh, modernity, and so on, in many ways we lost uh, track of our being, you know, the historical faith and the historical church. And uh, actually, every intellectual argument, every historical source was instead uh, understood as being uh, already a compromise. And so, uh, the tendency was to d distance ourselves from those roots rather than claim reclaiming them and operating according to those parameters. But this is a very more very modern contemporary uh, distancing of the evangelical faith from the historical theological roots of the church, and so. But we are paying a, a high price yeah. for for that damage. Is it fair to say that in the last, uh, more recently, there has been a, a push and improvement in that area in the evangelical world? Uh, yes, I, th I think, I think it, there, is much, uh, there is much to uh, commend in, in this uh, trend, although uh, in order to reclaim the past, to retrieve the past or the tradition, Oftentimes we do so in a very naive and superficial way, ways, uh, not really applying the same critical interpretation that the reformers applied, but tending to, again, idealizing, uh, idealize the, the church fathers, idealize the um, church tradition, and, uh, and thinking of it as if it were a single unit undivided, single, coherent unit, which was not. It, it has never been a coherent unit. There are different things according to different authors, according to different times, and so we need discernment. That is what we need. Yeah, that what the reformers did, yeah. discerning in the church fathers what was right, biblically speaking, and what was wrong. So evangelical institutions and churches, we, we have to retrieve that discernment, right? A theological alertness uh, and and teach those that we are equipping to be future leaders to have that same uh, theological alertness in, in what they read and what they listen to. So you, you alluded to this earlier, Clay, as you've, as you've kind of highlighted a lot of these aspects that are so attractive to people converting and crossing the Tiber. Um, what about the... Uh, the sacrament, the sacramental nature of the church is extremely, yeah, it's extremely influential. Now it's been one of the maybe would that be one of the top reasons that people cite and what they're attracted to by, or what what is the attractive nature of the sacramental the, system? The, the sense of objectivity, the sense of going beyond uh, um, individualism. You yeah. know, being part of something that is already set up that is not invented every time. And it is, it is not running after the changing moods of culture, yeah. but it's something stable, something that is rooted in, 
liturgical practices that uh, do not change. You're becoming part of them, but they don't change because of you. Right. That's the tendency of many, you know, seeker-sensitive evangelical cultures. They tend to change every season because they look for uh, new ways of being attractive to, according to cultural patterns. The sacramentality of the Catholic Church gives this, the message that the Church doesn't change. You, you, are, you are becoming part of something stable, ongoing, something social, something uh, that is rooted in, 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 in the sacraments that are visible uh, channels through which grace can be received. So away from sentimentalism, away from... Uh, individualism and back to recognizing the authority of the church performing the sacraments and conveying the grace of the sacraments. Yeah. As we kind of we're kind of running out of time, but as we as we kind of wrap up this session, I had made a, a quote earlier about the uh, the seeker nature of evangelical churches that unfortunately oftentimes could be found in a in a movie theater or a pop concert. But I, I, there's, there's an uh, initiative out of uh, Virginia called the Devonant Institute, and they have a, a great series of articles called um, "Why Protestants Con- Convert," and they don't they don't specify to Roman Catholicism. It's more of why people leave Protestantism, so, and they also cite sometimes to uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. But most, ex- almost exclusively, their examples are uh, Roman Catholic. So it's a it's an excellent uh, set of articles that we will pay will. Uh, make a link to, but he, they break it down into three main reasons that then have uh, subcategories in themselves, but they, they note the psychological reasons people uh, convert to Roman Catholicism, the theological and also the sociological. And in the, uh, the, the psychological reasons it is, and you see a lot of kind of overlap in the things that you've been saying, Clay, and what you, what you learned in your studies, and, and one of them is this, uh, this hunger for authority. You know, in many societies that are come from broken homes, uh, where you know rarely or more or more frequently children grow up in broken homes. Mm. Maybe there's no father figure. Um, there's this this desire for for authentic authority mm. uh, that often uh, the church can can provide. Of course, the the church presents itself as as the mother figure seen in Mary, but it's also you know you have the Pope, which means Papa, when you have the priest, which is father, called father. So mm. there's a there's a tangible response to that uh, desire for um, authority in the home. And then there's this uh, <clears throat> desire for holiness, even, and there's this innate desire for, for that. So this desire for authority then leads to a desire for authentic holiness, which, again, we talked about Roman Catholicism. Catholicism is a very visible, tangible, yeah. sensory-related faith that you can see, you can touch, you can smell when the incense is in the church. And so you walk into a Catholic church, certainly here in Rome, and I mean, I've heard uh, people, American friends who have visited here, just say, you talk about the sense of holiness that they feel, which is just totally aesthetic. Uh, aesthetic. Um, so it does have that um, uh, aesthetic appeal for sure yeah. in, a very, in a very tangible way. Um, and then there's the idea, they, what they call being a part of the inner ring, you know, always being community. a part of community. And you yeah. had mentioned community before. And uh, even though there, we know that there's, once you get in one inner ring, there's always another one that's even more inner, mm-hmm. <laughs> quote, unquote. Um, but there, that the, the magisterial 
ordering of the church and how it's structured hierarchically, hierarchically or however you say that, is a, is a, is a appeal, and there's always a, a, an inner circle to be, to be a part of. And then theologically, um, a lot of the reasons are, are very s- similar to the ones you gave, a quest for certainty, mm-hmm. um, the historicity of the church. Uh, of course, um, John Newman uh, famously said, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant, an Anglican that converted to, to Roman Catholicism in the 19th century, one of the most <laughs> influential, influential figures. So, And then there's the, the sociological reason. I could go on with the, the theolo- theology, but the sociological, um, the, you know, the, the perceived division in the church yeah. um, and, and just the, the answer that Catholicism uh, gives to many people of uh, what the weaknesses that they perceive. But that that's an excellent series. We'll put a link to it. It was a series of articles um, written by Chris Costaldo and uh, Brad Littlejohn, again, out of the Davenant Institute. Uh, if, if you have any experiences yourself um, of friends or, or relatives that have converted to Roman Catholicism uh, that would be different from what we've shared here, let us know. We would be interested to hear. Um, as, as Clay said in the beginning, what we'll do in the next episode is kind of as, as respond to these, to these attractions which say from an evangelical perspective, because again, what we've said, a lot of it is is perceived, and there needs to be a healthy evangelical response to a lot of these. The evangelical church needs to do a better job of, of, again, teaching its, uh, discipling in a sense, and 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 teaching church history, and and um, which would prepare better prepares their members to be to be believers. Um, but we'll talk about that in the next episode. But hopefully, that's that's pretty clear as far as the the reasons people are, are converting. Is there anything else we'd add to that? No, but what we're continuing this this research. So as as we identify other weak points and uh, other reasons, we're going to keep adding that to the list so that we can continue to tell the evangelical church uh, or ask them questions to help them evaluate what can be done. Before we go, I just want to remind our listeners that you can find us online at www.reformandainitiative.org. There you'll find resources. You'll find a link to our podcast. Subscribe, share it with your friends. You'll also find links to us on social media. We're on Facebook at Reformanda Initiative and on Twitter at Reformanda Rome. So we appreciate uh, your listening. And if you have any questions, reach out to us. We'll be more than happy to respond. Until next time from Rome, God bless. Thank you.